everybody. Welcome back to The Hustle. It's John Lamoureux. Okay, our guest this week is one of the most notable sidemen, I don't know how else to say it, in rock, especially the last, like, 45, 50 years. It's Kasim Sultan. I think most people know. I don't know. Kasim first came into prominence when he broke through joining Utopia in the mid-70s. Of course, that he sticks around with that band for, like, 10 years, and then eventually... Utopia kind of calls it quits, but of course that, through that, he forges or strengthens his relationship, his camaraderie with Todd Rundgren, and he's basically been working with Todd on almost everything ever since, including Bad Out of Hell, which of course happened first, early on in the 70s, but that led also to, here's the deal, it's a ton of collaborating, it's being Meatloaf's sideman, it's being Hollow Oates' sideman, he joins Joan Jett and the Blackhearts. He joins Indigo Girls. He joins Blue Oyster Cult. You name it, and Kasim has probably played with them as a bassist primarily, but also sometimes doing guitar or keyboards. So he has a brand new solo album out called Kasim 2021. It's out on September 17th. And uh, it's so good, and it sounds just like what you would imagine. In fact, it's produced by former guest Phil Thornalley. So if you've been listening to any of Phil's music as Astral Drive, which is his love letter to Todd Rundgren, it's, it's kind of like a circle. It completes the circle. Phil sounds like Todd. Todd influences Phil and Kasim. Kasim and Phil together sound similar to Todd. Anyway, it's very similar, all of this. Gorgeous, gorgeous stuff if you are a Todd fan. Check out the new Kasim Sultan album. Again, comes out on, February, on September 17th. Casm 2021. This is the first single off of it right here, More Love. So anyway, we hear stories about all of this stuff and uh, and a ton more. Such a nice, nice guy. He's so likable. You can tell that's how he's had the career that he's had is because he's just a genuinely sweet guy. He called me from his home in Staten Island. So before we get into the new album, I in getting ready to talk to you, I had completely forgotten that you had played keyboards with Cherry Vanilla. And I had Cherry on here about three years ago. Aww. Uh, she's great. I read her book. Yeah. She's had a lot of sex with people and she writes yeah. about it a lot. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. I just, I love, now you didn't play on those two albums of hers, I don't believe, but you did tour with her. No. Tell no, me I Cherry think, Vanilla stories. I think the albums, uh, the albums probably were done after after I left, although I did record with her. So there's mm. a, it's, a, it's possible that I am on uh, at least one or two of the songs on, on one of those records. Okay. I don't okay. Know. But when I, when I played with Cherry, uh, it was, it started in 1974. Wow. Uh, yeah. That was a, that was a long time ago. She had just finished working at Main Man Records with uh, David Bowie. She was the publicist at Main Man Records. And, and she, you know, she was like, she was right in there with the Warhol faction and uh, all the, uh, and the David Bowie uh, camp and uh, the New York music scene at that time, which was, it was pretty intense. And uh, her piano player, a guy by the name of Patrick Henderson, Mm. Uh, was leaving to go, uh, moving to L.A. 
uh, spot came open. My friend uh, was working with her at the time as her sound man and said, you know, Cherry Vanilla is looking for a piano player. And I'm like, I, I just started. I, I had my wife or who was my girlfriend at the time mm-hmm. um, had bought me a, an upright piano uh, as a gift. And I learned I, I was teaching myself how to play. I couldn't play. I was really not that good. And but I figured, you know what? I'll go and I will do the audition. And whatever happens, mm-hmm. the main thing is that I tried. And you know, I'm, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna take a shot. Sure. Uh, it was myself and, and and another piano player that was auditioning at, at, at on on this one evening. He was a virtuoso, and I actually knew him. He was a friend of mine, and he was. Uh, a br- brilliant pianist, uh, uh-huh. you know, all over the place. And I'm, I might as well have been playing, you know, with this side of my hand, um, but there was something about uh, that. I guess there was something about me that cherry and uh, plus I sing. So mm-hmm. cherry liked the fact that I sang and, uh, and I got the gig much to my chagrin because then I had to learn a bunch of, piano songs that were not easy to play. Patrick Henderson's amazing gospel piano player. Wow. I did my best and I wound up through Cherry meeting some amazing people in the New York music scene, like uh, Tony Zanetta, who was the president of Main Man Records, Lee Childer, a a brilliant photographer Mm -hmm. from that era in New York. Michael Kamen, who kind of took me under his wing and taught me and showed me a little bit of like, you know, you might want to try this on piano because he's Michael's a, a virtuoso pianist and, a, and, a, a, and an arranger. And uh, I wound up becoming friends with Mick Ronson, mm-hmm. uh, Mick and Susie. Um, so it opened up this whole other uh, world to me that, you know, as a kid from Staten Island, um, <laughs> I didn't have access to that, uh, to that, uh, to that, that atmosphere. Sure. Sure. Now, when she first started touring, the police were her backing band before they were the police, right? Did you, if I remember correctly, it was Sting and Stewart and Henry Hadavani or whatever the guy before Andy Summers. Were you around for any of that? No. Okay. So no, no police connection. No, I have no police stories. At least not police the band. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe other police stories. Oh, that's great. Okay. Yeah. I, uh, was she just outrageous? Cherry? Yeah. uh, Cherry was, she, she is just a, she's a doll. She is Uh a sweetheart. Um, and she wanted to have a career more than anything. And she wanted to be a singer more than anything else. She fancied herself a poet, a rock poetry singer. And, you know, she, she really uh, kind of took the bull by the horns and said, I'm doing this. We used to play at Max's Kansas city upstairs uh, in the, in the uh, venue upstairs from Max's. And then uh, we would go up to, uh, 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 Massachusetts, and there was a, a club called the Red Lion. We used to play there all the time. Just as she was uh, about to go on tour with the band and take them to Los Angeles, that's when I, I left. Okay. And why did you leave? To go I left do because what? I got the gig with Utopia. You did. Okay. I wondered if, there, if that was the next stop. Okay. Uh, we'll put a pin in Utopia and come back to all of sure. that, but we should talk about the new one, the new album, Casm 2021. I really like this album and one of the things that I like most about it and if I is anyway this sense of optimism or positivity 
um, which I, I think is kind of a through line through a lot of your solo work. In fact, you, you know, the album kicks off with more love and then it ends with what's so funny about peace, love and understanding. Both of these songs seem to be you sort of, it seems almost like a cry of like, can't we all just get along? Which in this day and age feels impossible. But yeah, you feel yeah. otherwise? What are you, what, what's the thinking there? Well, you know, I, I think that it's a lot for me personally, it's, um, it's important to, to, to keep a positive attitude. Um, you know, we can all name a dozen things during any given day that is wrong with the world, and especially especially these days. But I also think that it's really it's it's necessary to have a little bit of hope and uh, and to keep uh, to keep a light on the fact that we've had some tough times, and, and that's not to say that there won't be tough times in the future. And what what matters most right now is that we do our best to understand one another. As much as we might have differences, um, I, I have to respect your, uh, your opinion and your, what, whether I disagree or not, um, that's your opinion and you're entitled to it. Uh, and if we could just if we could just get along, it would be so much better. And of course, the opening song on the record is More Love. And I, 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 I challenge anyone to argue the fact that we couldn't use more love. It's mm -hmm. so true. So another former guest of ours is Phil Thornalley. Oh, really? Phil has been on? Oh, yes. I oh, how cool. love Phil Thornalley. That makes two of us. <laughs> I know. I just In fact, he... with him. I just you... got off the phone with Phil. Yeah. <laughs> he um he he was on three years ago, two, two or three years ago, and he actually suggested that I get in touch with you and bring you oh. on, which I again, like I said, you're one of our most requested guests. So I've been meaning to do this for a long time. And I didn't realize, in fact, after I after we lined this up, I messaged Phil on Facebook and I said, I'm about to talk to Cassim. What what do you think I should mention? <laughs> he sent over some just the nicest, kindest words about you. Uh -huh. I'll read some of them. Sure. Okay, because I want you to feel good. Uh, most generous, outwardly calm person you can meet. He keeps his grace, his gentle sense of humor and irony. He keeps his counsel. Is that how he's managed to deal with so many maverick, perhaps difficult artists through five decades? And uh, there are, we have Patreon supporters 
a few of them wanted to know about this difficult uh, artist thing, which we'll get to in a minute. But did Phil produce your whole new album or just yes. certain songs or what? He no, did? no, no, Phil, Phil co-wrote and produced the entire record. And I, I, I we have always worked, uh, we've worked together since the 90s um, on various things here and there, but never really a, 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 an entire record. Um, Phil contributed to my last solo record in 2014. And then before that, you know, we we kind of try we wrote songs together, whether they made a record or not is, you know, that is besides the point. It was just we work uh, we work well together. And uh, I think Phil is a, is one of the most brilliant songwriters that I've ever worked with. So it was just like when I when it came time to start this record, I was in London. I went over to Phil's uh, house and I said, you know, at the, he says, he says, Tell me, Kasim, is it time to start a new record yet? Is it time for another Kasim Sultan solo record? And I, and, and I said, you know, as a matter of fact, uh, it's been about four years since my last three or four years since my last record. So, yeah, I think it is. And he said, well, then let's have at it. Um, uh, so what are we waiting for? Uh, and uh, and we started writing and and it just the, the ball kept rolling. I, I, I would. Uh, uh, go back to uh, home uh, where I am now and uh, come up with a half a dozen uh, or 10 ideas. Next time I'm in London, I, I go over to Phil's and I'm like, here's my, here's some ideas. Maybe we'd get two or three uh, good ones out of that batch uh, and then com- uh, try to complete those songs. And that we, we did that for the entire record until uh, it was done. We just finished it earlier this year. He, you know, it's interesting uh, that you say that because it's probably, I'm sure it's not a coincidence. The music he's been making as Astral Drive the last couple of years, I think you even played on that. Probably. Yeah, I did. Yeah. Is, the last two Astral Drive records I've been on. That's what I thought. Okay, so it's it's obviously his love letter to Todd and influence of Todd, but there is a common sound or spirit i guess to your new album the what he's doing a callback to your musical history with utopia and and todd in general is it uh it makes sense that you two get along and collaborate that well together because it sounds like the songs or the music that you hear in your head is very similar right now you know we both come from the same school of uh poppy uh you know, uh, um, really kind of, you know, a little quirky, um, not typical chord changes, you know, make it make a little twist and turn here and there. And uh, so we both gravitate towards that style of music, um, which I think helps us work well together. And Phil, it, it, his musical sensibility is just, it, it, he's just, he, he's, he's great. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I love him to death. And we always have a good time working together. And I think that's, really um that's part of it is that you know you could work with somebody who you really don't uh or don't like and it's not a lot of fun working with them but uh maybe you make you know something that's that's successful or, or whatever but for phil and i it's uh you know it's always it's always a lot of fun when we get together and we have we have a good time and we enjoy each other. i'm going out on a limb here and say we enjoy each other's company but i i, I love him like a brother <laughs> That's great. Uh, I think my my favorite song on the new album is Sweetest Fascination. The chemistry on 
Yeah, mine too. Well, really? Well, <laughs> no, no, I don't have a favorite. I don't. I don't have a favorite. It's one of my favorites. There you go. I have, there you go. I have twelve favorites. Of course, one of, <laughs> one of my favorites. I love that song, and I love it because, well, first of all, it's just got a really cool vibe. It's almost yeah a little Steely Danish or. Andrew Gold or some of that like uh, Southern California late seventies. You uh, know what I mean? That- reminds me of a Hall and Oates song. Yes, there you go. Yes, yeah. yes. Yeah. And I Hall and Oates are one of my top three favorite acts ever. I'm going to ask you about them too. But um, yes, just the vibe on Sweetest Fascination, I think, is so wonderful. Is that something you and Phil drummed up together? What's the story on that um, one? I think that's one of the cases where I had um, uh, an idea. Uh, a little piano idea and maybe part of a melody. Um, and I came into Phil and said, uh, how about something like this? And he was like, oh, that's not bad. Uh, let's see what we can do with that one. Sometimes they get done. Some, sometimes they get completed. Sometimes they don't. It depends on the song. You know, they take a life. Uh, they take on a life of, of, of their own. And sometimes a song is meant to be completed. Sometimes it's not meant to be completed. <laughs> that was one of the ones that was meant to be completed. Good. And I, it, I, like I said, I, it, I, I really, really like that track. It's a Good. great Me too. Track. Me too. Um, I also really like Unsung. And yeah. I love the just the blatant <laughs> that line in there about you know I'm trying to pay my bills with gigs. Thank God for Rundgren. Yeah. I love that line because it's just so it's so honest and it's I mean it's a it's so well, timely. Uh- I'm going to give you a little, uh, I guess, a little uh, uh, information that no one else has right now. Okay. There's, a, there's, a, there's an entire podcast uh, being created behind that song. Really? Yeah. So we've uh, we've just finished recording six episodes of a new podcast. Nice. Uh, that is uh, uh, soon to be titled. Uh, the working title right now is Unsung. It's not a reality-based podcast. Uh-huh. It's not an interview podcast. It's a series podcast. It's um, it's a very, very interesting thing that we will be announcing shortly. Cool. Ooh, yeah. I love it. So I started my podcast six years ago, and uh-huh. Unsung was what I was originally going to call it. Oh, really? Because, yeah, because originally the the idea was to sort of track down people who had had a maybe like one hit or had like a 
one album on a major label or had a moment uh-huh. where it seemed like it was going to happen for them and then it sort of went away. Uh-huh. And uh, so I thought Unsung sounded perfect. Yeah. But I think when I looked for it, there were other, there was another podcast called Unsung. So I changed the name. Yeah. But um, I, I, this is going to be fascinating. I am so glad you're doing this. This is great. Yeah, me too. Uh, and, and, and it's it's a scripted podcast. Oh, really? So, yes. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Uh, with actors and a storyline. And uh, it's, ve- it's very interesting. I don't want to give too much away. Okay. Okay. Uh, my manager will kill me, but... Uh, but it is uh, we're we're cool. uh, we're in the editing phase right now. That's so. fantastic. See what happens? I love it. That's great. Okay, good. Um, okay, so we have uh, a lot of Patreon supporters, and yeah. some of them sent over. I always tell them who I'm interviewing, and they're welcome to send over questions if they want. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned the Beatles a minute ago. One of the questions came from Michael Bagford, and he wanted to know how you got involved with Yellow Matter Custard, which. I didn't know what that was. I had to look it up after he mentioned it. Like a Beatles um, tribute band. Yeah, I guess for lack of a better term, you could yeah, say it's a true. Beatles tribute band. Um, uh, it, and uh, I just got a phone call. Um, the bass player that did, they had done a bunch of shows, I think a year, a year and a half to two years before um, I I came in. Uh, Matt Bissonette was, uh, was the bass player, along with um, Paul Gilbert on guitar and uh, Mike Portnoy on drums and um, uh, a stellar Neil, cast. Yeah. Neil I'm on keyboards, be- a okay. beautiful guy. So Matt was uh, going out on the road with someone couldn't do it. Mm-hmm. And whether it was uh, Mike or Paul who called me and, uh, and, and asked if I was available, I happened to be, and I, I, I jumped at the chance to work with, I love Paul. He's a great, great guy. And Mike Portnoy is an amazing drummer. So um, I, I, I decided that it would be a fun to do, fun thing to do. Uh, it was a month, maybe, I don't know, three weeks out of my life. And I had a really great time. Really? Playing Beatles songs with those guys. It was, yeah. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. That's lot, great. Yeah, I was curious where that came from too. It's funny okay. too because because Matt, you know, Matt's a, a, is a real prog uh, drummer. Uh, so it's Portnoy. Pre- 
yeah, mean, Dream, Dream Theater, yeah. and and Paul Gilbert is a, yeah. is another. You know, he's a shredder. Yeah, um, and you wouldn't you, you wouldn't couple those guys with exactly, Beatles, but they are huge Beatle fans, so it was a lot of fun. Oh. Yeah, that's why I thought that was so interesting. How does yeah. something like a project with those people come together to do that thing? Yeah. Um, all right, we should. I know you get asked about Todd and Utopia and that period of your life a lot. We'll cover it somewhat here. I um, one another one of our listeners, Brad Page, is about the biggest Todd Rundgren fan I know, and he said that there is a funny story about how you even came to join Utopia. Is this a story you've told everyone should know, and I don't? Maybe share it with us. Uh, you know, I don't know if, if, if uh, I certainly have told it. Okay, I'm sorry. No, that's okay. <laughs> okay. Um, actually, we 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 are going to take a little uh, trip back in the wayback machine mm-hmm. to the beginning of this conversation where we talked about cherry vanilla mm. and uh, and Michael Kamen um, and the guy who brought me into cherry vanilla's world. Uh, a very very dear friend of mine, guy by the name of Tommy Morangello. Yeah, so. Uh, I'm living at my parents' house uh, here on Staten Island, and Tommy uh, comes over, My he drives to my house uh, and, and says, hey, I have to take Earl Slick, a uh, guitar player, um, mm-hmm. to the airport. He's got to start a David Bowie tour over in uh, in England, and I'm, I'm driving him to JFK. You want to take the ride with me? Um, I said, yeah, sure, no problem. So we go uh, three blocks from my mom's house uh, over to where Slick lives get out of the car, go into the house to uh, pick up Slick. And the first thing that he says to both myself and Tommy is either one of you guys want to play bass with Todd Rundgren. And, and I said, Tommy, let's, let's both audition. Let's uh, go. Uh, and Tommy said, no, 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 no. I don't, no, I don't want to do that. You do it. You do it. You, you'd be great. Uh-huh. So I said, okay. So Slick says, uh, he said, okay, we get to JFK. Uh, call Michael Kamen up and he will uh, give you the details. Get to JFK, put a dime in the payphone, mm. and called Michael Kamen up. And now, Michael, if you remember from the beginning of this uh, conversation, I know this is completely convoluted, but Michael says, um, uh, he says, you play bass. I didn't know you play bass. He says, I thought you were a piano player. Uh-huh. I said, well, I, uh, I, I do play bass. Uh, it's my first instrument. I said, but I am, you know, also a piano player. He said, uh-huh. okay, no problem. I'll recommend your hands down. Um, he called Roger Powell, who was putting the auditions together. Todd was mopeding uh, across Southern India at the time. Um, and they had already tried out about eight, eight people. I get a call the next day, uh, uh, come up to Woodstock and, uh, and we'll see, uh, we'll see how it goes. Um, I borrowed $20 from my uncle, uh, took an Adirondack Trailways bus the next day up to Woodstock. Roger Powell picked me up in Kingston, drove me up to, uh, Bears, uh, Bearsville, actually, excuse me, Lake Hill where Todd lived. And, uh, I spent the next day and a half learning some Utopia songs with Roger Powell and Willie Wilcox, the drummer and the keyboard player for Utopia. Todd came back from India the next day and said, okay, uh, are we ready to make a decision on a bass player? Uh, Willie and Roger said, yeah, this kid that that just came up, we think he's great. Uh, Let's, you know, we want you to check him out. I played with the band. Todd, 
did not think that I was the right person for the band. He thought I was, I was, I had just turned 20 years old and I had never been on the road before. I'd never recorded a record before. Mm -hmm. Uh, And he thought that I was a little bit too uh, green, uh, wanted someone with a little bit more experience to their credit. Roger and Willie insisted that uh, that I was the right person for the band. And Todd reluctant, reluctantly allowed me uh, an opportunity. And uh, the rest it is was history. history. There yeah. it is. What is it about your relationship? Because, again, going back, several people asked, you know, how do, how do you maintain a, re- a relationship with artists who are difficult, supposedly, or have, re- you know, reputations like that, like Todd or Meatloaf for so long. Is it, uh, in fact, one of my listeners specifically, Ian Sharp, or or, I'm sorry, Philip Hopwood asked, do you, um, you know, is it just sort of a do what I tell you to do, or is it more of a democracy than that? You have creative input, you, it's, you know, it's a band vibe more than Todd telling everyone what to do. I think on some level, it's probably that, uh, that if you're uh, if you're working with someone, you're working with them for a reason. It's because you bring something to uh, to the table that would otherwise be maybe not be there, or yeah. uh, or 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 someone else would would bring something different. It might not be the right thing. Maybe mm-hmm. maybe it'd be better than you. Who knows? Mm-hmm. But the thing is, is that uh, uh, people um, people work with you because of uh, of what you bring to. To the chemistry, to, yeah, to to the organization or or to the music. So there's a certain level of trust involved. Like I'm trusting you with my music, and uh, and it, I'm sure that that you're going to treat it with the with the respect uh, that it deserves. Right. So with Todd, um, you know, I've worked with Todd for a very very long time, and I guess I, I bring something that he uh, he appreciates. Yeah. Uh, with meatloaf, it was pretty much the same thing. Um, I didn't really, uh, you know, when I first started working with meatloaf, it was on Bad Out of Hell One, and Meat was was the singer on that record, uh, and Jim was really the uh, he was the the driving force behind the music and behind all those songs, and, and I, I I treasure the 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 time that I worked with Jim Steinman. He was just a, a, a real real brilliant brilliant guy uh so it wasn't until night until the early 90s that i started working with meatloaf as uh a, a, as a band member i i brought uh something to the table that was important to him and yeah. uh, i wound up being his becoming his musical director for uh 10 years um great great part of my career i i really really enjoyed the time that i spent working Good. in that band Good. Um, I have spoken with Ellen Foley a few times too, who, you know, sang on Bat. And um, one, I am a big fan of Jim's solo album, Bat for Good. Mm -hmm. And you played on that. The sea is whipping the sky. The sky is whipping the sea. You can hide away forever from the storm, but you'll never hide away from me. I want to wrap myself around you like a winter skin 
And I wondered if you could share us a story about working on that particular album, because well, it's kind of a bananas album, but yeah. I love it. Yeah. Um, it, you know, that didn't start bad for good started off as bad out of hell too. Right. I have behind me here, my, one of my cabinets, there is our, our cassettes of basic tracks from right. that record where we did out of the frying pan, um, bad for good. Uh, um, uh, a couple of other songs that wound up on uh, on the the official Bad Out of Two, Bad Out of Hell Two record in in the nineties, but uh, but that record started as uh, as as Bad Out of Hell Two in nineteen seventy nine, I think it was when we started recording that record, and and somewhere around I don't know a month into recording basic tracks, it just all fell apart, mm. and and they were on the road. That's when Meatloaf kind of. He had his issues with uh, with, you know, with just a little bit too much, a little bit too quickly. Uh, and they had a uh, they had a falling out with the with the management and things just kind of disintegrated in the middle of what was going to be bad out of hell, too. That's when all that stuff was taken and made into uh, bad for good, which was Jim's first solo record. Mm -hmm. Did he, do you think going in that Jim, uh, I mean, I love those songs. Jim's voice isn't as strong, but it, it almost, to me, it doesn't matter. That song, that album gets criticized for that a lot, but to me, it doesn't matter because the arrangements and the songs are so strong. Do you think that Jim knew going in that like, I'm no replacement for meatloaf. So let's just see what happens. Or do you think he thought maybe this could be the first step in a bigger, broader solo career for him? You know, I, I don't know. I never really spoke to Jim about it. I, I, I can only say that uh, that the, the vibe that I got was, well, it, you know, if I'm not going to work with with him, then I'm going to do it myself. Mm -hmm. um, and and I, I'm sure Jim, you know, hoped that uh, that it would be successful. I mean, we all why sure. Why do we bother doing it? Other than exactly. We, we want to touch other people with our with our music. But I, I think that uh, that it's very, very difficult to maintain that level of of success. I don't know. Jim's Jim's real success is in songwriting and lyrics. And and that's where he, you know, is one of a handful of people that have had as many hits for as many artists as as he has. And so that's really where Jim shines uh, as opposed to being a front man, I don't know that Jim uh, was the uh, the uh, had the, the the cachet of right. something like me or Todd yeah. or you know, John yeah. Bon Jovi or you know any one of a number of people that he wrote successful songs for. Mm -hmm. Did he ever perform any shows? Did you tour with him? I don't even know. Or was it no. just an album project? I, I, I believe it was just an album project. Okay. Okay. Going back to Meatloaf again for a second, when Bad Out of Hell 2 finally comes out in the 90s, um, you're back in the picture. And then you produce Is Nothing Sacred Anymore, one yeah, of his well, songs, that, right? Um, yes, that was a Jim song. Uh, and uh, I don't 
think I produced that song. I think uh, that was Russ Teitelman. Oh, I read somewhere that you did. And I st- started thinking, I no, don't I know produced, of a lot of I, other producer I credits think, for Castle. I produced um, the VH1 Storytellers uh, CD. Oh, And that okay. was on there. That that was on. So that's that was, what it was. That was my okay. production. But okay. that but the single okay. is nothing sacred. Yeah. Uh, was produced by Russ Teitelman, great producer, wonderful guy. And, I uh, wondered about that because yeah, yeah, when I saw that when I read somewhere that you had done it, and I thought I didn't know that. And uh yeah. if he did, why is he not producing more stuff? But okay, that makes more sense. Yeah. No, I did I did the VH1 storytellers. Okay. Okay. Um, I was trying to think I have, I think I've seen you in concert three times Mm -hmm. because I've seen Todd twice the first time. Okay. You're going to have, we're going to have a therapy session here for a second, Kasim, because the first time I saw him. So here's the deal. I think, you know, that uh, there aren't a lot of like casual Todd fans out there. People love Todd Rundgren. He's like a religion to certain people. Uh Uh-huh. And uh, I've I've always liked what I've heard from Todd, but I didn't I didn't know what all the hype was about. And about ten years ago, he came through Denver, where I live, in concert. And uh, I thought, well, let's try this. Let's go see Todd in concert and see what it's about. It was at the Bluebird Theater, and it was so frustrating because <laughs> I should have read closer. I think it was called an improvised night with Todd Rundgren or an impromptu night with something like that. It was called the unpredictable tour. That's it. The unpredictable tour. And so he would play a song of his sort of half-heartedly. And then you guys would break into like old radio jingles or he would make stuff up or like commercials, you know, that he saw when he was a kid. That's what most of the night was. And I was just like, what in the world is this? This was that was my my first you know experience with Todd Rundgren, and I was so frustrated by it. Yeah, well, you know, um, far be it from me mm-hmm. to question why uh, another artist does what they do. <laughs> In the case of Todd, I, I, I'm best off just saying, okay, that's what you want to do. That sounds that if that's what you want to do, let's go ahead and do it. Uh huh. You know, uh-huh. I, I, you have my backing a hundred percent, and so th- those uh, those unpredictable tours we've done we've been doing them on and off for the past ten years. Mm-hmm. The, a, a lot of the time, um, it's songs that that particularly speak to him on some level. Like mm-hmm. we do Weezer's uh, Hash Pipe, that's um, right. Off the Brown Fire, we do a, a, at least one Lorn Green song from, <laughs> from Bonanza. Um, Patches, oh, Muskrat Love by um, right. Neil. Right. Um, uh, Roller Skates by Melanie, who actually came up and 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 performed it with us. Really? Oh, yes. that's great. Oh yeah. Um, uh, one of my favorite uh, covers is um, "I Don't Want to Grow Up." Uh, I won't grow up. Uh, uh-huh. The uh, Disney movie, uh, a Mary Poppins, I believe. Yes. Um, so. So there's uh, there's some uh, there's some really obscure stuff in there uh, yeah. and sprinkled in with a little bit of uh, of Todd solo material uh-huh. and maybe one or two Utopia songs. You never know. That is kind of Todd 
relaxed. Mm. He's relaxed. He's doing what he wants to do mm-hmm. and he's having a good time doing it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he doesn't have the pedal to the metal mm-hmm. in terms of uh, this is a 90 minute show and I am, you know, I'm going to be on from mm-hmm. the minute I walk on stage until the last uh, last note of the last encore mm-hmm. um, that, you know, the, after what now it's taught for Todd, it's what, 50 plus years something on like stage, yeah. something like that. So I, I think for Todd, it's, you know, it's, it's just a, a chance to sip a martini on stage sure. and play some songs that he enjoys playing. Yeah. Yeah. It was interesting because I think I was one of the younger people in there and Everybody else there are these Todd devotees who know that they're seeing a show they've never seen and they are loving it. But me, who's like, I let's see what's so great about this Todd guy. It's yeah. like, this is what people are into, you know, rawhide and stuff like that. Yeah. That's what it felt yeah. like. But it was so then, so I left kind of frustrated. Yeah. Then a couple of years ago, I saw you guys again at the Boulder Theater. And it was more of a traditional show. And he played all the songs. And it was great. It was one of the last shows I saw before the lockdown. And he takes time out in the middle to answer questions. And he talks about his book. I bought the book and read the book. And I loved it. And um, then it started to make sense. Now, I think if I went to that first Todd show, I would love it. But as an introduction, it was not what I had in mind at the time. You know what I mean? Just as an aside, we'll be in Denver, I think, in November. Oh, fun. Uh, and, and we're we're doing um, uh, A Wizard of True Star. Uh, oh, great. Uh, so uh, part of that record, plus The Individualist, uh, which is the show that you saw the last yes. time. So yes. that might be something that you might want to check. Ooh, well, okay. Well, I mean, now I'm into it. Now I get it. But I that first time I wasn't as into it or didn't understand what was going on. Yes, I love the other shows I've seen. Um, the third time I saw you, I think is I saw Blue Oyster Cult yeah. play at a casino up in Blackhawk. Uh-huh. Yeah. And I don't even remember if you were there. Um, but uh, What year? This, Yeah, I, was try- I texted my friend to figure it out. It was probably seven or eight years ago. Uh, Might have been me. Yeah, I don't remember. Um, I should have, I should, because if I had heard your name, I would have thought, what in the world is Kasim doing playing with Blue Oyster Cult. How did you get that gig? Was it outside of Denver? Yeah, it was up in the mountains in a casino. That was us. Was Was it? Yeah, Okay. I've seen the Smithereens up there and John Waite up there. And um, great John has a new record out right now, actually. John Waite? Yeah. Yes, he does. I had him on here a couple of months ago. He's great. I love him. I I love John. He's a really, really good guy. He is a good Uh, guy. So how did I get the the blue ice? Yeah. I've been I've been friends with Buck and Eric uh, and Albert and Joe and uh, rest in peace, Alan, uh, for a very, very long time. We did a tour together in 1978. Mm. It was a, a, a utopia slash blue ice to Cobill. Uh, and we went from Vancouver to Toronto in January. Oh. <laughs> With, wow. with every single stop along the way, Saskatchewan, uh, Edmonton, um, uh, uh, Regina, uh, you, you name it, we were there. Uh-huh. So we became close in, in the 70s. And I maintained uh, a relationship with Buck and Eric ever since, especially Buck. Buck and yeah. I have been, have been close friends. He played on yeah. my first solo record. Uh, and um, 
in any case, um, uh, their bass player, um, Rudy Sarzo, mm. was uh, love Rudy. Yeah, Rudy's great. Mm-hmm. Was uh, was um, uh, go, uh, leaving to do something else. Rudy was in the band for a few years. Mm-hmm. They needed somebody. They asked me if I'd fill in, uh, and I wound up staying for about six years. That's wild. That's wild. Good for you. Um, yeah, and it was a lot of fun. So, I mean, gigging is really, as you said in that song, unsung. Gigging is really your thing. You're. I was thinking about it. You're one of like the best sidemen ever. You're the Robin to whoever wants, whoever the Batman is. And it, because I talked to a lot of session guys on here and that's not really your, your gig. It's more of the sideman. You're there to support an artist doing whatever it is they want to do. And they yeah. call on you. Cause like you said earlier, that chemistry or whatever the thing is that you bring empowers them to do what they want. That's a really unique, special trait that not that many people have. Well, I think, you know, I, I, I think that what my, my uh, what I have been most proud of and, and, and feel that I have been most blessed with was the ability to not just play, you know, any one specific kind of music. So so for three years, three and a half years. Uh, uh, you know, I was a, a Blackheart and then played with Joan uh, right. and, and uh, you know, did a bunch of records with Joan uh, and a bunch of touring with Joan and went right from Joan Jett to Hall and Oates for two and a half years. So that juxtaposition of on one end, uh, you know, I'm playing I Hate Myself for Loving You or I Love Rock and Roll. Mm-hmm. And on the other end, I'm playing Sarah Smile. <laughs> and, I'm, and, you know, and I'm, I'm equally comfortable playing both roles uh as a bass player uh and uh and i think that that's that's something that i'm most proud of is is the ability to not be stuck in one uh in one narrow uh genre of like well i play you know rock and roll and that's it you know um or i play heavy metal and that's it or i play r&b and that's it you know I, i i pride myself in the fact that i can go from joan jett to Paul and Oates, uh, right. from Paul and Oates to uh, Bon Jovi or from Rick, Richie Sambora uh, yeah. or, you know, any one of a number of places. So I think yeah. that, that that really is uh, that that's the thing that I'm most proud of. It should be. That's your gift. That's what makes you the legend that you are. I was going <laughs> to ask you about Joan. Um, I hate myself for loving you is my favorite Joan song.
How, how did you get that gig? Um, I, I grew up here on Staten Island. One of the uh, one of my oldest and dearest friends is Tommy Price. Oh, one of the best drummers that I've ever worked with. Yeah. Um, Tommy was playing with Billy Idol at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we I mean, we we lived like 15 minutes from each other. And when we were in the eighth grade together. So while Staten Island is uh, not particularly a, a very big place, the musician community on Staten Island is even smaller. Um, so we all knew each other. And uh, we all played in the same bands together. And so when Tommy got the gig with, uh, when I got the gig with Hall, uh, with um, Todd Rundgren, uh, Tommy was playing with Mink DeVille. Uh, oh, sure. Um, and, and then went on to play with, uh, with Billy Idol. So we, we were both, you know, we were successful in our early years, in our 20s. And then Tommy, after playing with Billy Idol, uh, Tommy went on to uh, uh, do some record. He, Tommy was uh, it was doing a lot of session work at that time, uh, and one of them was with Joan. Uh, okay. Joan uh, needed uh, her drummer had just left, so Tommy wound up playing drums with Joan. Um, uh, Joan's bass player Gary uh, had had left the Black Hearts. They needed someone to come in and finish a record that they were doing. Tommy suggested me. I had just left Utopia at that time. Utopia had kind of disbanded a little. Right. We had dissolved the band a little bit. And that's how I started. Tommy called me and asked me if I'd like to come and play with Joan. Okay. And that worked out well because I hit it off with Joan. And then I wound up being in the band for about yeah. three and a half years. And you and Tommy, for anyone who doesn't know, have a killer song called No TV, No Phone. Yeah, well, we did a the All Nighter soundtrack. Yeah, yeah, from that movie with Susanna Hoffs. Uh-huh, uh, uh-huh. That was, and actually her mom, Susanna Hoffs mom, directed that video. That's right. I'll never quite figure that one out. How well, uh makes two of us, so. Yeah, I don't, I don't get it. But Paradise anyway. Beach in Malibu, that's where that was uh, uh, filmed. Really? Yeah. Yeah, Paradise yeah, it's a classic. Yeah. So then Hall & Oates, when, when, okay, so early 90s, you know, these things, everything you're saying makes sense because I know you worked with Steve Stevens and I'm thinking, how yes. in the world does that happen? 
but it's probably yeah. from the Tommy connection. Correct. And and then you met and Richie Sambora and John Bon Jovi, yeah. and I'm thinking, how did those things happen? But in the early 90s, John works with Hall and Oates on the uh Change of Season album. And oh, I didn't oh, know that. So, oh, yes, he co-wrote and uh a couple songs on that. And I was wondering if that was the connection there. Cause I think that was around 90, 91, something. No, like that. actually the connection was that John and Richie, uh, they grew up in, in New Jersey, mm-hmm. Staten Island, where I'm from is not that far from New Jersey. It's just over one bridge. And again, you know, a, a, a lot of the same people. Richie uh, was a utopia fan mm. and, uh, and, and in turn was a fan of mine. And, then, and this is prior to John uh, Bon Jovi becoming a huge uh, okay. success and Richie and John becoming hugely successful. Richie uh, was doing a solo record and uh, 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 he was working with a friend of mine, uh, by, a guy by the name of Richie Supa, um, who was a singer songwriter. Um, and they they needed a bass player. Richie said, I wonder what Kasim is doing right now. I wasn't doing much. <laughs> and I wound up uh, in Richie, uh, Richie's solo band for a, uh, a, a, a few years. That's wild. That's yeah. wild. Actually, ha- it, it, uh, I'm ahead. sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off, but no, please. A, the, the, the other part to that story is that uh, I was doing, um, uh, uh, Meatloaf uh, was up for a, a, a British Music Award, and, uh, and, and I was at JFK. We were flying over to, uh, this was in 94, Five, I think. Yeah, 1995. We were flying over to uh, to perform at the uh, the uh, BMAs, British Music Awards, mm-hmm. and a, a huge. Uh, that that was a big deal. Mm-hmm. Um, and we were taking the Concorde uh, from JFK over to London. John was on the same flight. John and the band were on the same flight, and uh, Alec, the bass player, was not there. They didn't know who they were going to use for bass. I was in the lounge at the same time. And John said, you're going to be at the BMAs. Why don't you play on our song, too, with us? And I'm like, that's OK. Yeah, sure. <laughs> I, I can do that. So I wound up performing with two bands on the British Music Awards. No that, way. Yeah, it was really cool. So I played Rich- with John, with Bon Jovi uh, and then I played with Meatloaf. Crazy. Too. What Bon Jovi songs did you play? I uh, Sleep When I'm Dead. OK, OK. Uh, that's the only one. We only did one song. OK. And okay. and and. Brian May was in the band as well. Really? Oh, yeah, 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 wow. Yeah. yeah, so it was myself, Brian May, and then the rest of Bon Jovi on stage. And that's how Richie and I kind of hit it off and became uh-huh. close. Okay. Then. Yeah. So how did the Hall & Oates connection happen then? Um, you know, I, I, I've known Daryl and John since the early, uh, uh, since the mid seventies, hmm. because we did some shows together, Utopia and Hall and Oates in the late, in like 77, 78. And Todd produced so, their third album. Correct. Uh, Abandoned War Babies. War Babies. I'm sorry. War Babies. War yeah. Babies. And, I uh, so I knew John and I knew Daryl and, uh, we were, uh, we, we were friendly. And there was a tech uh, by the name of a guy by the name of Tom Permy, who was the guitar tech. T-Bone, T-Bone Wolf, who was the bass player, uh, wanted to play guitar in the band. And uh, Tom Permy called me up and said, you know, T-Bone is uh, he's going to be playing guitar. And I think they, they're looking for a bass player. You want me to drop your name? I said, absolutely. For, for sure. Um, so he put my name in a hat. 
uh, Daryl and John knew, of course, they knew who I was. And um, they invited me up to play with the band for a day. I did. And then I wound up being in the band for about two and a half years. That's wild. That yeah. is wild. It was a lot of fun. That was one of the best bands that I've ever been in because it was not just Daryl and John, but it was Bobby Mayo on keyboards, who most people know as uh, with Peter Frampton. He played like, Ooh, baby, I love your way on the Ooh. Frampton Comes Alive. That's him on Rhodes. Um, and then T-Bone as the bass player. The two guys that... It, it, if I never play with another person as long as I live, just the simple fact that I played with those two guys, that is something that it. that is just not very many people can yeah. can can say that. And it, people it, love T Bone, and yeah. you know it's interesting. I um, when Daryl started his show live from Daryl's house, and it was just on the internet. I would watch it religiously every month, and I you signed up and you got an email every time. The new show was up. And through watching that show, I felt like I really got to know T-Bone because he was he was sort of the glue that kept everyone together. I Hall and Oates, as I said, are one of my favorite bands of all time. But Daryl doesn't seem like the warmest guy in the world or the you know the friendliest guy. So T-Bone was there to sort of bring some levity and some fun and some you know good vibes to the whole situation. And then to have him die so suddenly out of nowhere. It felt like somebody I knew and was getting close to passed away. And I don't, I don't, I, mean, I didn't know him at all. You guys knew, knew him. Yeah. And I hear very, nothing but good things about him. Very, very sad. Very sad. And, uh, and, and what a talent, just yeah. what an, an incredible, talented person he was. Yeah. Uh, and, and along with Bobby Mayo too, Bobby, yeah. you know, Bobby doesn't get half the uh, accolades that, that he deserves. I mean, you could, you could pull the most obscure song that you can possibly think of out of the air and say, oh, do you know that song? Blah, 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 by blah, blah, blah. And it's like Bobby plays it. You really? Know? Or, oh, yeah, absolutely. A walking okay. encyclopedia. Okay. As I mentioned, one of my one of our uh, Patreon supporters, Philip Hopwood, sent over some questions. And he said, I saw you, Kasim, play with Blue Oyster Cult uh, in Melbourne several years ago. Mm-hmm. And while they were name checking the artists, when they got to Meatloaf, Kasim gave a thumbs down. And he says, I often think about that and would be interested to know what was behind that. And um, I wondered if that's too sensitive a topic or whatever. No, we don't I don't have mind. To go there. Uh, okay. Listen, I, it, it's my, it, it, this is my history. It's my truth. And, okay. uh, you know, there might be somebody that would disagree with it, but I don't care. Yeah. Um, it, so, that was probably not long after I, I stopped working with Meatloaf. And um, unfortunately, uh, I, I, I wished that things had ended on a, 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 on a better note with me because I, I, I love him and I enjoyed working with him. But it, 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 it ended kind of badly. And I think I was probably still a little hurt by the way that things uh, ended with my time with meatloaf. And so that's probably why I did that. It okay. was a childish thing to do. And, um, I, I, I don't think that, that, that looking back in retrospect, uh, I really, I, I was a very, very lucky person to work with meatloaf for as long as I did. And I, uh, and I, I, I appreciate that. Uh, I, I appreciate the, the time that I spent with him. 
but uh but i i, I it stung a little bit for i believe it the, the way it was it probably ended. a fresh wound right then too yeah it was only it, was, it had only been a couple of years really yeah yeah, yeah. that makes sense um Okay, one more one more collaboration that I wanted to ask you about was Indigo Girls. Yeah. How did you get to play on that first album? Uh, I don't think it was the first album, was it? Oh, that's what I read. The first oh, album. It, it was a uh, no. I don't think I, I. I think it was their second or third record. Oh. Um, it was Are you on record. like closer to fine? Do you yes. Play... I'm trying to tell you something. Best thing you ever done for me used to help me take my life less seriously. It's only life after all. Yeah. Well, darkness has a hunger that's insatiable, and lightness has a call that's hard to hear. And I wrap my fear around me like a blanket. I sail my ship of safety till I sank it. I'm crawling on your shores. I went to the doctor. I went to the mountains. I looked to the children. I drank from the fountains. There's more than one answer to these questions pointing me in a crooked line. And the less I seek my source for some definitive Closer I am to find, yeah. Closer I am to find, yeah. And I went to see the doctor of Does that have Land of Cana on it? I think it, I think, yes, it does. Yes, okay. yes, 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 yes. So um, I was living in LA at the time and um, I, I was doing a bunch of sessions here and there for uh, various records. Um, Steve Lillywhite, I believe, is the producer on that record. Mm. And I just got a phone call. They they, uh, they were looking for a bass player for, for a recording session, uh, and they wanted me to come down. Mm. Uh, and I came down. I, 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 that was, that was a, such an enjoyable experience working with, uh, with Amy and Emily. It was really, really great. And, the, uh, and Steve, the producer, was he's a very, very famous guy. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had a wonderful time on that session. It was really, really a good experience. You're right. That was their second album. I forgot. Yeah. Strange Fire was their first, and I thought mm-hmm. they were reversed. And um, I am a huge Steve Lillywhite fan. Yeah. Do you um, have any stories about working with Steve specific? Any memories? No, he was. I mean, he was. He was very, very um, accommodating. And good. you know, when you do something like that, when you when you're in the studio for four or five, six hours tops. Uh, and, and you've never met anybody in the session before. It's like you're, you're immediately thrust into someone's world and you kind of have to navigate um, uh, being, you know, too friendly or not friendly enough or, um, or, or too suggestive or not suggestive or take direction or give direction. So it's always a, a very, very fine line and you, 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 you kind of got to, the best thing to do is take the mood of the room mm-hmm. and, and figure out where your, where your spot is. Nice. And, and it was easy with Steve because he was such a pro uh, and uh, 
it made it made it very very comfortable for me and so did amy and and emily made it even Good. more comfortable they were just the sweetest people Good. that uh it was a great experience and i, I i'm pr very very proud of that uh that track i love them a lot i think they're really special um Okay, I, we didn't. I, I do have a couple of Utopia questions. I, um, as I mentioned earlier, our friend Brad Page is a huge Todd fan. Something I didn't know about um, the uh, Adventures in Utopia album was that it was was there supposed to have been a television show attached to that one at one point. You know, uh, th that was a that was a very interesting uh, uh, concept because it was it, it was. If you build it, they will come mm -hmm. before the popularity of that uh -huh. saying. Um, so so Todd's attitude and Todd was one that came up with the idea. Todd said, well, if we say that we have a television show around it, mm. then people will believe it and then we'll get our own television show. Um, so um, genius. So, yeah. Right. And <laughs> and uh, and so we're like, hmm. Maybe that's not a, such a bad idea. Right. Uh, there was, there might have been a treatment written, but there was never any, uh, it never got any further than that. Yeah. Okay. Now you sing Set Me Free off of that album, which is my favorite Utopia album, I, I have to say. And that's the only top 40 hit for Utopia. What? When you're, when you guys are moving along and you're in a band that everyone seems to respect and nowadays maybe loves more than you did at the time. I don't know. I was probably too young. What it, are you getting frustrated that you're not breaking through more? Or are you thinking we're making a living as musicians? We got Todd here. We are having some hits. We can tour. We're fine. What are you thinking at that time? Um, you know, I, I, I mean, who doesn't who doesn't want to be more successful? Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> so, and actually, I have to give credit to Todd, of course, uh, because Todd said, "Here's what we're going to do. We're going to sit down, and we're going to look at the top, at the Billboard top ten hits, mm -hmm. and we are going to take each song and rewrite it. Oh, and uh, and so." I think at that time, the number one hit song was More Than a Feeling mm. by Boston. And, uh, and we came up with The Very Last Time.
which if you put those songs back to back, they're very, very similar. And there was a couple of other songs on the record that were directly, uh, I, I don't want to say copied. Sure. It's not. Inspired uh, by. Or inspired whatever. by what was popular on the chart at that time on, on the Billboard Hot 100 chart. Okay. Um, Set Me Free came about uh, uh, because... I had written, uh, uh, I, 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 had, I was trying to get off my record contract with Bearsville Records. They had signed me as a solo artist. Uh, and Albert, uh, Albert Grossman, um, did not think that I was ready to record uh, my first solo record. I, I disagreed. I, I felt that I was, uh, that I was ready to go. Um, I had a bunch of songs demoed up that I wanted to uh, put on, a, on, a so on my first solo record. Uh, he said, no. I said, well, then let me off the contract. Uh, he said, OK, that'll be fifty thousand dollars and 15 points on your next record. Yikes. And I'm like, what? He's like, this is business, kid. You know, this is how we do it. And I got so upset that I sat down and wrote Set Me Free. Really? Uh, yeah. Yeah. I took, that song was written in about 20 minutes. Oh, wow. uh, and, uh, and and then I brought it to the band. Uh -huh. And God bless Roger, uh, Willie and Todd. They made that song uh, the, the, the pop record that it was. Oh, I you love know, Todd, it. That's Todd's guitar part and Todd's sure. string lines and Roger's uh, input in it. Yeah, that's how that, that song wound up. Now we know. Okay. One of my other favorite songs on that album, that album in particular is Caravan. Uh -huh. What song inspired Caravan? You know, Remember? I think that 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 song speaks to uh, the prog, the influence that the band always had, uh, it, it, you know, and our roots were always in uh, Utopia's roots is always in progressive music. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, that's kind of a, uh, you know, there's a, a, a there's a drum solo in the middle. Uh, there's a, 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 a Roger and, a, and Todd trade off solos at the very end. It was just a. Uh, Kind of a proggy, you know, mm -hmm. uh, not not your typical pop song record. Okay, I am curious how what you think now of Deface the Music, and was that the right album to put out after you guys are starting to kind of have success? Because it's a fun Beatle tribute tributey album. <laughs> the 
But I don't know that it was the right move right after you're starting to get some traction. But what do you think? Well, um, you know, when when we came after uh, Adventures, myself, Roger, and and uh, and Willie felt that uh, we were on the cusp of of becoming a, a lot more commercially successful. Utah Adventures in Utopia sold about a half a million records, mm-hmm. and uh, and that was like for Utopia that was unheard of. Mm-hmm. Nine months later, after we had toured behind the record, we were getting ready to to record to do the next record, right? Mm-hmm. Which uh, every nine months you do a record, um, and we get up to Woodstock, and Todd said, um, "All right, I already have a, a a few songs recorded for the next record that we're doing." We're like, "Great." Excellent. What is it going to, you know, can we hear them? He's like, yeah, but before you do, he says, just want you to know that we're doing a Beatle tribute record. And and Roger and myself and Willie look at each other like, did he just say Beatles tribute record? He says, well, it's not really a tribute record. What we're going to do is we're going to take the Beatles um, songs, all of our favorite Beatles songs and rewrite them. So uh, like Michelle, we're going to do that, but in our own style. Um, I want to hold your hand. We're going to do that, but in our own style. We're going to rewrite all the songs. So, you know, in retrospect, um, it might not have been the best thing to do in terms of capitalizing on our commercial success or a nearly commercial success mm-hmm. that we had at that time. But it, it was um, it was an interesting record. And unfortunately, just uh, that record came out right after uh, John Lennon was assassinated. Mm. And the last thing that people wanted to hear was a Beatles yeah. sound alike record. So yeah. the other thing wow. too, that was important about that record is Todd wanted to make a record where there were no overdubs, uh, uh-huh. where we all played, we just played together as a band in the studio. And that's, yeah. that's, that's how that record was recorded. Okay. That makes sense. Were you sad when Utopia came to an end or kind of almost ground to a halt? I was, dev- I, you- I was devastated. Really? Uh, yeah, I, I completely lost my my shit when that band I bet. ended. I bet. Um, because it was all that I knew for 10 years. Um, so, uh, I, I, you know, I kind of, uh, I was I, I was like, what do I, what do I do now? You know, what, where do I go? Where, what's going to happen next? You know, cried in my soup for about six months. And uh, and then pulled myself up by my bootstraps and uh, found something else to do. Good. I because it uh, I feel like you guys were. I prefer the latter day stuff to the proggier earlier stuff. I do like the earlier stuff a lot. But like, for instance, I love the self-titled album from 82. It's kind of a fun yeah. skinny tie, you know, new yeah. wave power pop type album that was getting really popular at the time.
I didn't know if you guys were like, you know what, no one cares anymore, or if it if Todd wanted something else, or if everyone was sick of each other, or out of ideas, or what really sparked the end of Utopia. Um, there, there was more supply than demand. Mm. Uh, you know, we weren't selling a whole bunch of tickets. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were having difficulty finding record labels that would um, uh, that would support uh, a, a new record and uh, give us an advance to to make one. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, and then there was some internal strife between a couple of the band members. Uh, I'd, I'd rather not get into. Sure. But it was time, you know, we had uh, we had kind of run run the course and we had had a really, really good run. Um, And I would much rather have um, uh, left on that note than if we just kept slogging away. And, you know, uh, just no matter what, damn the torpedoes was still going to go out there and, you know, play and and make records. I think it means it means more that we that we stopped Mm -hmm. than if we had kept going. I think you're probably right. I mean, it it keeps that stuff, you know, bronzed, perfect. Yeah. uh, Now, now, granted, there are bands that, you know, that I'm glad they still play like Mm -hmm. Ario, Styx, uh, 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 Kansas, uh, Leonard Skinner. uh, uh, you know, there's a ton of them out there that still go on sometimes with only one original member. Uh, but that was not meant for us. Yeah, know? that wasn't yeah. meant for us. I get it. Um, one more collaboration of yours I meant to ask about earlier. Glenn Burtnick. Yeah, he's been on here a couple of times, too. I love Glenn. And you're on the Palookaville album. Johnny ran off on the next boat set to sail. Johnny rode on stars in his eyes with the sun setting on the trail. Then he hitchhiked from heaven to hell and returned with a story to tell. And here it comes. Johnny go here, Johnny go there. Johnny always got a lot to say. Everyone knows Johnny's in town when the piper comes around to play. Well, it's gonna be crazy tonight. There'll be action and cameras and lights. And here we go. How do you two know each other? Is this another one of these Staten Island, New Jersey connections? Yeah, is exactly. it exactly? Yeah, uh, uh, Glenn is a uh, is a is a big Todd fan. Okay, and I guess by just by proxy, a fan of mine. Hmm. So um, Glenn and I, we have very kind of parallel uh, career paths. Both have three kids. Uh, you know, a house in the suburbs and uh, and a solo career, mm-hmm. um, as well as working with other uh, artists and uh, we and we write songs. Yeah. So, um, of course, at some point during our uh, during our careers, we were going to, you know, cross paths. Mm-hmm. And then it's like, hey, um, want to write a song together? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So uh, that's how that that's how okay. that happened. I love Glenn. He's a great guy. And uh, 
really, really talented uh, musician and a really great. hard worker. He, oh, hard worker. Perfectly said. That's it. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Um, what you personally, I mean, I know your wife passed away what in 2011. Are you, um, are you remarried? Do you just, you just watch no, the kids? What do you just, no, uh, yeah. um, um, I, uh, I have a, a, a lovely girlfriend uh, and she's a, she's a great person. I, I, I have my children. I, I live at, at home with my son and uh, my daughter, uh, my middle daughter just had her first child uh, about yes. five months ago. My eldest daughter has three children of her own. Wow. So my, my family plate is pretty full. Good. Good for you. You deserve yeah. it. Well, thank you, Kasim, for talking with me. I, uh, I love you a lot and I love everything you've done and I'm so grateful for it. And, um, I, um, I hope that people will check out Kasim 2021 because I think it's a special piece of work and, um, there's so much on there to like, you're going to be doing a little bit at some shows to promote the album. Is that right? We have a live stream that's uh, that's going to be announced. It's September 9th. It's a little like a little preview on the rest of the record, and uh, uh, and I have some solo shows uh, uh, in September the 12th. I am in uh, just outside of Philadelphia in West Chester, Pennsylvania, at the uh, the Uptown Theater. Uh, the 14th, I'm at Daryl's house up in Pauling, New York, Fun. and the 17th. Uh, which is actually the actual release date of the record. I am in uh, Irwin, Pennsylvania at the Lamp Theater. So, um, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of stuff happening. And then I go out on the road with Todd on October 1st. Great. Oh, one last thing I forgot to ask. Yeah. On the Quid Pro Quo, Pro Quo album, you cover Where Is My Soul from yes. the Finn Brothers. Mm -hmm. I'm a huge Neil Finn fan. What made you decide to cover that? Um. I think probably what what makes me want to cover any particular song, I hear it. And then I think that's a song that I wish I would have written. Yes. And um, and so instead of uh, uh, instead of sitting down and, and trying to write a similar song, uh -huh. I say, what the hell? I'll just, uh, just I'll just do my it. version of it. And yeah. my version is is pretty is pretty spot on to the. Original. It is. It's yeah. beautiful. I love their version song. and I love yours. Yeah. Yes. Thanks. Yes. Thanks. OK, thank you, Kasim. You're the best. Thank you very much, John. Thank you so much. It was a really enjoyable hour and 10 minutes. There you have it, Kasim Sultan. Guys, okay, now that this is over, I'll come completely clean. I totally forgot to ask him about the, probably the main topic I wanted to discuss, which was the new cars. What was that like? I mean, it kind of flamed out, but you had part of the people in on it, part of them not, and uh, trying to tour, trying to play those songs. I completely blew it. I had a page of notes, and it's on there, bold, and I still forgot and skipped over it and had everything else. So, guys, I'm aware. I missed the new cars, and I'm sorry. I'm kicking myself. That was one of the things I wanted to know most about. Oh, well, Kasim's a sweet guy. As you can tell, you can see why his career has gone on as long as it has. And we want to make sure that we rush this episode out so that you can be aware of the live stream of the upcoming shows, the album coming out. If you want to get, hop on the bandwagon and see what Kasim's doing, now is the time because there's a lot of activity coming out around the release of 2021. So good. Want to close it out with the song I mentioned at the end here, his cover of the Finn Brothers tune, uh, Where Is My Soul, which was on, I think, his last solo album, Quid Pro Quo, that came out probably 15 years ago, something like that. Anyway, great guy. 
Uh, next week's guest, we haven't had a producer on here for a while. And so next week's guest is a British producer who, uh, once you see what this person has worked on, it will be no surprise to you that he's on our show. First of all, he's hilarious. Secondly, he tells great stories. And third, if you know me, you'll know that he's worked on tons of music and with tons of people that I love and that come up frequently on this podcast. So that's what's coming up. Hope you guys will check it out. It's a lot of fun. Huge thanks, as always, to Yanaman Makavich, my right-hand man, for everything that you do. Thank you, buddy. We love you. Uh, guys, you can find us on Facebook. You can like our page. You can stay in contact with us that way, or you can send us an email at thehustlepod at gmail.com, or you can find us on Twitter at thehustlepod. All right? And I think, I don't think we have any bonus stuff coming out this week, so we will talk to you next Tuesday. I'll take your wisdom and I turn it into dust. You fill my ashtray, the one I come to trust. So. Oh